Hey everybody, thank you for downloading this episode of Out Front on the Chicago Podcast Network. I am Nick Sorrentos and we're going to be doing sort of a review of the State of the Union last night and getting into some of the issues that were raised during that and also uh, some of the other issues that weren't addressed in the State of the Union that we would have liked to have heard. All of that today on Out Front with AJ and Nick here on the Chicago Podcast Network. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Gmail. You can email us at Chicago Podcast Network at Gmail. Com, or we're under the name Chicago Podcast Network on any of the social media sites. Thank you so much for downloading this episode. I hope you enjoy, and here we go. Hey, everybody. Uh, we are... Doing our show today. This is Out Front with AJ and Nick. I am Nick Sorrentos, Editor-in-Chief, Host, and any other title that I want to give myself here on the Chicago Podcast Network. Joined over the interwebs on Skype by my good buddy, AJ Sineri. AJ, do what you do. Hello, people. There it is. He got all deep with it again. I love it when he does that. It makes me feel good. Make me feel good. I, I don't know. I apologize. I watched. I don't know about you, AJ, but after watching all the the full fifty eight minutes of the State of the Union, I, I feeling a little slap happy today. How about you? Fifty eight minutes and thirty nine seconds of Barack Obama. Yeah, at his most Obama since he's taken office. Would you say? Oh, this is um a different Obama than I expected, really. Really? I didn't think it was going to be like, some people are hashtagging it as like, um, give no fucks Obama. (laughs) And I kind of had a notion he was going to be something like that, but not like the whole 50 plus minutes of that. You know, I, I, it's funny because to me, when you listen to, I know you don't, but I listen to a lot of sports radio in my downtime, mm-hmm. and you always hear these guys making jokes about how they have to sit there and watch the entire game, and when you decided to do, when, when I decided and you decided to do political radio, we kind of agreed in our heads that we would watch all of this stuff, so we had to watch the entire thing, and... Now I know what those sports radio guys are talking about because there does come a point where you're like, you know what, I'd really like to just kind of tune out of this, read the highlights later, but nope, I have to watch it. That's the deal that I made. And it's just, it, it turns into an all-long suffering thing. It's like watching a, a blowout game at some points where it's like, okay, I got it. How did you watch the uh, State of the Union? First of all, do you feel the same way that it's just like, there, there comes a point where you're like, I'd like to turn this off now. Well, well, it is, you know, and when I was, you know, working as a college coach and, you know, got to be friends with a lot of sports information people and a lot of other um, sports news media in Milwaukee, Chicago, and elsewhere, it's like, you know, watching sports is one thing and trying to, like, watch it as your job is another and just, like, Politics, you know, I've been watching like things like C-SPAN, MSNBC, Fox for a long time, and there is that kind of "it's your job" type of mentality. And there are points is like, you know what? I'm just gonna wait till like five or six in the morning to get like the fresh highlights, and then call it a day. It's it's one of those events that 
you know, historically goes back, and, and you look at it, and it's it's a fascinating thing that happens every year. The president of the United States stands up there and talks about what he thinks of the country, and I, it becomes this political theater. I I don't know about you, but I've always been, even since I was younger, I've always enjoyed the idea of watching the senators and the uh, congressmen not applaud or applaud depending on the issue that they find most appealing is 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 just great theater but it also has always felt very junior high to me well it is and we've gotten to the point in the united states that we now have to look for the nonverbal cues because those are more important than the verbal cues that the elected officials are doing and that's why you see like the news stations and elsewhere spanning into the crowd and seeing who's applauding, who's not, who's falling asleep, who's not, who's tweeting, who's not, you know, and then that adds a whole layer of other distractions in our minds. It's like, well, why aren't they paying attention to this? Because this is the president. Just because you don't like him doesn't mean you can't like not listen or not tweet or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is all political theater, um, and even though it, it's obligated, the president's obligated to do this because it's because it's in the various documents. So, Article three of the Constitution, he shall from time to time. So the president has to do this, but at the same token, every president ha- who has done this. It used to be the State of the Union was supposed to be the rallying call for, you know, be in the chamber where both representatives and senators are in the same room and charge them that, you know, this is the report and this is what we need to do, go get them. And now you start seeing a little bit more separation between the State of the Union and Congress. And I would say probably around Bill Clinton that's kind of been more so that, you know, it's Bill Clinton versus Congress, you know. And then we saw even more so with George W. Bush. And now we're seeing it more so with Obama. So um, it's been more divisive than anything else. And then obviously you have the opposition response. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you about that because you had an interesting post uh, right after the State of the Union. And I, I thought it was interesting that you said, uh, the opposition response after the State of the Union is the worst idea ever. What did you mean by that? Because this is the worst idea ever. It, the, the, the reason why we have these opposition responses is just so the other side has something to say because that's either not their president or that's not the way they're thinking and everything. And the, the opposition response is supposed to be this like we heard you heard that one side now here's our side you know and it's like the worst idea ever because when you start getting the majority leaders of the opposition to choose who's going to do it then there's a whole it could be either a very backlash thing or it could be like the best thing and ever since obama They've had the Republicans have always had the worst representation <laughs> of the Republican response and everything. Um, not saying the Democrats hadn't done that because they had, but I mean you saw it more so because with like Mark Rubio reaching for 
the bottle of water. You oh, yeah, yeah. Bobby yeah. Jindal. Now Nikki Haley. Um, well, then wasn't it in 20... I think it was in 2012 where you had the, the State of the Union, the Republican response, and then the Tea Party response as well? Yeah, and that was with Rand Paul. Right. And then Ted Cruz did one. I'm, I, listen, let's face it. Between last night, today, and tomorrow, we'll get how many Republican candidates are left? 14? We'll have 14 different responses to the State of the Union, and I'm willing to bet not a single one of them is uh, glowing with support for the president. No, and if you start looking at your social media and elsewhere, I mean, even Nikki Haley's getting some backlash within the Republican Party. Um, and she had an uphill battle in and itself when she was running for governor of South Carolina because she's of Indian descent. Interesting. So, I mean, even with... The, and she was like the Tea Party darling at one point, and now she's become this more of established Republican as governor in the state of South Carolina and everything. So even her and herself has really had backlash because of, you know, she's an Indian American, she's also a woman, Tea Party type, and now she's been governor for so long. But I think it was Rachel Maddow last night who pointed out, and I didn't realize until she said it, that when Obama became president, the first Republican response came from Bobby Jindal, who's also Indian American, and then you end it with Nikki Haley, who's also Indian American. So you have these bookends of two immigrant um, children whose families are Indian, and that's the bookend of you know the Obama administration and everything. And you could say the same thing about Obama, even though he was born in the United States, but his, af- his father was Kenyan, you know? Right. But you had that immigrant family... Um, aspect to Obama's life as well. So it was interesting to note that you had Jindal and Haley pretty much the beginning and the end of you know the response for the Republican Party for the Obama administration. That's a good catch by you. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting juxtaposition over a period of eight years. It's very fascinating. I want a few little things. I don't want to get bogged down in a lot of specifics from the speech, uh, but there's something I want to talk to you about it's sort of. It wasn't mentioned in last night's speech. It hasn't gotten a lot of media play, but it seemed to stand as action in opposition to what they were talking about. Uh, I'm assuming that you've heard. It's not just happening here in Chicago. It's happening across the country. But I'm assuming you've heard of these uh, immigration raids, the ICE raids that have been taking place. I have, but I haven't really like followed them. Okay. I mean, I know what there are, but honestly. I'm just not interested in knowing what the hell's going on with that because we just have bad immigration reform all the way around. Well, I, I just want to get into this a, a little bit. It, it's uh, someone in my family, and I've been asked not to be specific, uh, has seen this issue at least three times up close uh, where in one instance a family was at home, uh, immigration came to the door, took the parents out of the house and put the kids into foster care. Mm-hmm. Uh, something similar happened at a traffic stop. Right. And they've also had roadblocks coming in and out of uh, West Chicago and a few other neighborhoods out west where they are stopping people on the street and attempting to ascertain their citizenship status. Uh, and the person who who did this is an American citizen, but happens to have a uh, ethnic last name, and as a result has been sort of harassed from this. 
this is taking place under orders under the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and yet he goes up there last night and begins to espouse all of this, you know, wonderful thing about being childrens of immi- child, you know, childs of immigrants and how we all come together and all this stuff. Does the hypocrisy of policy upset you, especially at a big moment like that, that when you can hear, not necessarily this issue, AJ, this one was one that stuck out to me, but an issue that you know that they're just blatantly lying on stage and there's no repercussions as uh, as a result of that. Are there any issues that you felt were they were being that the president was being hypocritical about last night? I, I imagine military was one that comes to mind with you. Well, I mean, the military was one of them, but, you know, some of the other things I was posting last night on my own Facebook page of other hypocrisies, um, he, it was a, a policy thing, it was just a statement he said, it was just in between a few lines they was talking about how, you know, um, you know, the young cop who is protecting our streets and everything, yet, you know, we've had huge amounts of massive incarceration under Obama. We still have a state in Louisiana that has more blacks per capita in jail than anything else. We have people stop and frisk in New York, Chicago, Houston, L.A. And then he was talking about the private job sector that has been on the rise, but we don't talk. he didn't talk about the public-private partnership that's been going on both domestically and abroad that actually has brought down unemployment, actually has, excuse me, then has not really raised employment, it's really downgraded employment and everything. And those private sector jobs are also taking away local businesses and everything. Um, so between that, the immigration, um, the war, and we saw war hawk Obama last night where he was proud of the fact that, you know, we, you know, 10,000 drone attacks in the Middle East and everything. And essentially say, you know, under my administration, we killed Osama bin Laden. We killed this al-Qaeda leader in the Middle East and everything and all that. But yet he still hasn't closed Guantanamo Bay, even though he said that. He still hasn't done it, and I don't think he ever will close Guantanamo Bay. Um, So there's a lot of things in there that he was uh, touting as a happy, a high no for his administration, but really, it's more hypocrisy than anything else. The issue that they get into when you start simultaneously—I've always been amazed at how there there are just these in wrestling. They call it the cheap pop. You know, mm-hmm. like Mick Foley walks to the ring, and goes, "I'm so glad to be right here in Chicago, Illinois," and everyone stands and goes crazy because they said. You know, the town that they're in. Mm-hmm. It's no different than if a Bruce Springsteen does it or a Metallica. Right. Last night's version of that was, we need to do more about the military. We need to, uh, he mentions the, the, the famous newsroom, you know, we spend more than the next eight countries combined line. Mm-hmm. And then goes, but we're also the greatest fighting force the world has ever seen. And everyone stands and claps. And it's just like, okay, great. And then the, the, the bit about, oh, we've got to make sure that we protect the tax cuts for middle class. And because it's a tax cut, all the Republicans and Democrats and everybody else stand up and go unanimously clap. And then we switch that to an issue. But the, the, the number of times that, it, that you could have just inserted, we need to do this, but... And then he would go off on a different tangent. Now, he didn't actually say but because it's not very presidential to do that. 
But you understand, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, though, right? Like, there's right, this right. this thing of where we're going to play for the applause and then talk about what we're really going to talk about, and then half the people don't stand and applaud. But it's that West Wing moment where when you have when you have Obama doing that, you also have people behind the scenes who are now tracking demographics. They're tracking what's on Twitter, what's on Facebook, what's on elsewhere. And based on all that information, then Obama's going to use that when he goes on his road tour, as well as Democrats who are going to get, get behind the president saying, you know, this is what Obama said. Clinton today put out an ad essentially saying, you know, I'm supporting Barack Obama regarding, you know, Affordable Health Care Act. You know, so... I mean, this is, I mean, all of this is just more for the political science end of it. And that is, you know, the polls, that is the surveys, that is um, the data that people need to know when they want to get certain issues across. Now, when you saw this, Nick, when you saw the State of the Union address, what were some of the things that were coming to your mind when Obama was speaking? I thought it was very interesting that he, in many ways, went right after uh, the Republican candidates for president uh, several times, most notably uh, the moment where... And, and my favorite thing about that, by the way, was watching <laughs> was watching Ted... Uh, not Ted Cruz, uh, Speaker of the House. Why my, my is my brain? Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, sitting there, having to listen to it, and knowing that he's not part of that race... But listening to the president go, anyone who's trying to tell you that America is weaker now than it was seven years ago is, is selling you a fiction. And anyone who says that our economy is, is, is tanking is, selling, is, is lying to you. I mean, those are very thinly veiled references to, to Jeb Bush, uh, Donald Trump, and, and Rick Perry, and all of the Republican candidates who are basically running on, the, on this idea. And he, with the full power and office of the presidency of the United States, shot that down, uh, but didn't really offer anything in, in the manner of proof, which bothered me. And the stuff that he did do, the numbers that he brought up, are very easily debated. I, you mentioned the jobs numbers and all of that. What struck me most about last night was that the speech was too long, and I think that about every State of the Union. I really you believe it was too long. Yeah, I feel like the State of the Union. It, listen, you're going into your last State of the Union, and. In the world that we live in, AJ, I, this is honestly my biggest complaint about the State of the Union during Obama's presidency, is that he's been such a traditionalist about it in that he's going to go up there, he's going to speak for an hour, and then he goes on the stump tour afterwards and all of that. To me, the objective should be to go viral, as stupid as that might sound to some people, but it should be a 10-minute speech, long enough to be on YouTube and watchable, and if you did that, everyone in the world would watch the speech. I'm not kidding. Like, I really believe that. I think that's the biggest issue I have with the State of the Union is that it's so long that it becomes impossible for people to really follow what's going on. If he had gone up there and given a 7- to 10-minute speech about what needs to be done and focused on, let's say, two issues that he felt were the most important, that, I think, goes a lot. It would have gone a lot further in pushing the Democratic agenda and positioning them better going forward. I also was struck by the lack of acknowledgement, really, of his executive orders regarding uh, gun control. Uh, I feel like that should have been addressed in his speech as well. Those, those were the things I was thinking about the most. But mainly, it was the thinly veiled 
uh, verbal slapdowns of Republican candidates. I thought that was the most interesting thing that had happened. No, I think that was interesting too, but I wasn't totally surprised because this is a presidential year, and so he wants to get the Democratic candidate elected, and he's going to do that by using his own bully pulpit to do that and everything. And it was interesting because he didn't bring up the executive order about gun control and how his executive orders have helped certain things and what have you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of other things that also struck me as interesting. I didn't think it was too long. I thought it was not short. Um, I think it was very brief in comparison to what Obama's used to doing. Because he can be long-winded. I've, I mean, I've been in the room with him before, and he can be long-winded. And so for him to make it 55 minutes was it's like, oh, okay, so you can do that. <laughs> I, I, th- I thought that the, the – th- to, to me, the more I look at a, a speech like – but do you understand what I'm saying about it going viral? That yes. at this point there's, there, there's more to be said about it being short and easily packaged and – because if he had done that, I think you can rally the entire country around something that people can share instantly. No one's, and I'm not trying to be, but most Americans don't want to watch the entire speech. They just don't. And I can't they don't, blame. But I guess so. Why do a so? I'm hearing why do a speech and just publish a report. Well, up until because, the I mean, 50s, that was how it was done. That's what he's doing. He's giving a report. To the public, because that's our taxpayer dollars at work, right? So, I mean, in order for it to go, you might as well just publish a report and then do the 15, maybe 20-minute highlighted speech and then call it a day. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's, that would be the better way to go, that if you want to get in the details, you can. But if you want to legitimately... Be able to sh- to inspire people because I, I always think that anytime the president addresses the full Congress, that it should be an opportunity to inspire the American people. And the last fifteen years, I really feel like that hasn't happened. And I, I'm too young to actually remember any to really remember any of Bill Clinton's State of the Unions. I don't think I was as politically engaged in ninety nine two thousand when his presidency was running out. So I don't remember his. I mean, George and George W. Bush's were as as a trained broadcaster watching that man speak publicly was torture because it it was just he couldn't speak properly and it drove me nuts and the the butt ums would would get me like crazy. Mm-hmm. As I looked at Obama's speech and, and we get into it though, there's I I, I don't know I, I just feel like the a shorter speech that inspires or can go viral should have been the objective i also don't understand why and and you can tell me why this would be a bad idea but why the hell don't you just hire aaron sorkin like why isn't aaron sorkin the guy who writes your speech do you think aaron sorkin wrote that speech no i'm saying i I don't think he did i'm saying why isn't he i don't know i mean i've always been intrigued of how presidents choose their speech writers right you know um, even though if, I'm sure most of them are in-house, but if you temporar- temporarily hire somebody just to do your speech, I'm c- curious who, because I think Aaron Sorkin 
would have been a good writer. I think Lawrence O'Donnell, who also wrote for The West Wing, would be good at it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, who's the writer? At Malcolm, is it Malcolm Gladwell at The Atlantic? Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, he's another good one. Um, I, but, there's a, a list of great writers who talk about policy and, you know, how to attract um, attention to certain articles and everything. So, I don't know, because Obama's a great orator, but doesn't mean he's a great writer, you know, because I've seen great people with great oratory skills who cannot write and vice versa. So... No, I, 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 I don't have a problem with it. Like anyone who's who's foolish enough to think that so, that a, a political candidate writes their own speech is an idiot. Uh, it, 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 to me, though, it's just. It, I'm it's, sure he does. I'm sure he does write, but has to give it to someone else to make it sound the way it should sound. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, you're you're right about that. But there's there's just an opportunity lost. I feel in your last State of the Union. To instead of doing the normal thing, just go up there and go. Since I mean, and he did to a point address some of the stuff. I thought, and this is one of the things I wanted to get into you with you was I thought his line of one of the I, I don't I cannot remember seeing a State of the Union where a president admitted regret uh, about the divisiveness of his presidency, which he did, and I thought that was a very interesting moment. What, what was your reaction to that moment? Um, I I think that was interesting because I. I haven't heard a president ever talk about um, the division among um, Democrats and Republicans and between the executive and legislative branches. And then the same thing with Nikki Haley, who said, you know, there's even division within the ranks of the Republican Party. Um, So that theme of division was really interesting because I think it finally, I think that finally resonated with some American people that there's people who do actually own up to there is a problem. We understand there's a problem. So we don't know what, how, how we're going to do it, how to fix it, but we're going to nonetheless um, get off of the right foot or something. Do you, getting away from the state of the universe for a second, do you feel that's something that within five years can be do you think that there's any room for compromise anymore or do you think that we've as because i think that the result of social media uh in the political process has driven people so far to the extremes because only people with extreme voices are now heard that i don't know if a president can truly be a unifying figure anymore do you think that that can still happen i think i mean it can happen but people have to choose to be part of that compromise, you know, I mean, you have to be a participant in order for change to actually happen, you know, and if you choose not to be that participant and you choose to have the extreme voice or you allow certain people to have those extreme voices, then you're more the problem than helping, you know. So if you have, I mean, there's Republicans in there who are willing to work with Democrats and vice versa, but those people are being bogged down and marginalized by the people the, by the far right of their party. Right. Not to mention that they seem with the far right to 
it, it, it's, it's a very strange, bizarre thing to have to force people to have a certain way of thinking and, and to just never, ever, ever take into consideration the, the, the moderate idea of, I just want to be left the hell alone and be able to live my life. It, it, there's, there are many things in the speech, AJ, that I wanted to get into. And, but the one that I, one of the things I thought very interesting was this line in the speech. I actually wrote it down on my little notepad. But after years of record corporate profits, working families won't get more opportunity or bigger paychecks by letting big banks or big oil or hedge funds make their own rules at the expense of everyone else or by allowing attacks on collective bargaining to go unanswered. Though that line right there is very much a, I feel an endorsement of the Bernie Sanders plan to go after the big banks, and is definitely an attack on the Scott Walker, uh, Republican right way of of fighting against collective bargaining, which is one of those issues. Uh, another issue that I wish that had been addressed a little. If you're going to go for 58 minutes, address that issue. The the. The villainization of of unions and of collective bargaining, to me, is one of the most irresponsible things that have happened in this country in a long time. Mm -hmm. It's it's done by people who don't remember their history and don't understand the, the blood and sweat and lives that went into union forming in the 1800s and early 1900s. Do you feel that that's something? I think that that's one of the biggest concerns. Like we, we, we constantly hear politicians referring to the economic divide of the one percent, the ninety-nine, and all the wealthy having all the money. Unions are one of those things that balances that, and the 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 lack of defense by Democrats of those really bothers me. Does it bother you? It does. And if you asked me a year ago, you know about does the right and Republicans and other conservatives, you know, not know their history? And I would say, yes, they don't know their history and so forth. Um, my opinion has changed. Pete, they know. They know their history. Uh, and if they don't, then they're just fucking stupid. Plain as, plain as that. Um, they are smart. They know their history. But they choose to believe an ideology that feels... That that's not what, you know, working America is. Working America is pulling up by your bootstraps. You you go into work and you pay your dues, and then somehow you're going to be a manager. You're going to go up to be an administrator, and then soon to be maybe president or a politician or CEO of a company and stuff like that. But it doesn't work like that at all. It doesn't work like that at all. And it took workers to unite to create unions from the beginning. And the one thing I will say, to be fair, is you have certain union members who were from the beginning who became greedy. And they became union bosses, and they are actually trying to get more money so they can get more political leverage while certain union workers are not getting their fair shake and getting their fair wages and everything else. But that's that's another episode. But... When you have workers coming together and having forming unions because their working conditions are so poor and they can't even have a voice in the workplace and everything, who else are they going to turn to? That, that, Go ahead. No, you're exactly right. That, that to me is the biggest concern about the demonization of unions is that suddenly at some point in the last 12 years, man, it's become 
totally fine for people to go, no, unions are the problem. And, and, and again, in the speech last night, uh, the, the one line that I really love more than anything else, food stamp, this is my favorite line in the speech, food stamp recipients didn't cause the financial crisis, recklessness on Wall Street did. Immigrants aren't the reason wages haven't gone up enough. Those decisions are made in the boardrooms that too often put quarterly earnings over long-term returns. That is 100% true. I just wait. I honestly wish that the entire speech had just been about those two sentences and, expo- and expanding on that because that's the truth. The, the Republican right and, and, and many politicians have come to demonize unions and welfare, and like the idea of drug testing with welfare. Like, just because you're on welfare, chances are that you're on drugs, which is insane. And honestly, statistics tell us that you are less likely to be on drugs if you're on welfare than if you're not. The idea that it's poor people's fault that this stuff is happening is one of the most disgusting things to me that's happening in the American political culture, especially when you look at what Republican candidates are currently running on. The, well, I, go ahead. It's, and I'm saying that's true, and if I can just be personal for one moment. You know, at, at 18, I was a manager at 18. In, for my first job, you know, I oversaw five people, you know, and then the next year I got to oversee 20 people. So I've been a manager since 18 and then 19, and then I've had managed positions ever since. But other than doing this podcast and doing my other organizations, I don't have income. But yet I pulled up my bootstraps and I try to get jobs, and that's not paying out for me now, is it? So I don't see how Republicans can tell someone like myself or anyone else that if you pull up by your bootstraps and get to do your fair dues and everything, you can get higher achievements. And I think that's bullshit because I feel I have done those things, and I know other people like yourself and others have done greater things, but yet we can't succeed because of various barriers in our place. So, I, And when you have those barriers like Scott Walker in Wisconsin, Rick Snyder in, Minis, in um, excuse me, Michigan, Bruce Rauner now here in Illinois, Tom Bryanstead in Iowa, Chris Christie in New Jersey, all these Republican governors are putting more problems in the states and have unemployment going down in record numbers and i think it is a farce when these republicans saying you know we can do this by getting rid of unions by doing all this and putting more money into private sector jobs that's the way and how's that helped any state at this point well now imagine the idea that if you the more you cut the idea of a union and are like, well, what we'll do is we'll just force all that money that's being lost to the union. We'll put them back into the company and that money will get down to the workers. And says, no, it's not. Like, we, we have a hundred years worth of evidence to show us that just because a company is making more money does not mean that its workers are going to be treated any better. We know that for a fact. Now, to sit there and lie to us and say, well, it will be different this time, you know, what was the George Bush, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, uh, 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 you ain't going to fool me again. <laughs> you know, one of those. It, it, but, and, I, and we're joking about it, but the truth is you cannot sell people. We have a thing in this country that, that people say all the time. If you, if you have a friend who's a teacher, you will all, you, 
invariably, Republican or Democrat, you will hear the sentence, well, teachers should be paid more, right? Okay, that's fair. But who's going to organize the people to get that done? Who's going to make sure that teachers get paid more than a living wage? I have a friend of mine. She's a wonderful girl, She a wonderful woman. She teaches at a school. She makes less money than I do in a year most of the time and has to pay out of pocket for school supplies, for everything else, mentioned again in the speech last night, and no reward is given to her for that. She, every year, is dealing with the fact that at any given point, her school budget is going to be cut, and she's going to be out of a job again. She's had three teaching jobs in three, I think actually four teaching jobs in three years, because every school she's gone to has been in the middle of a budget crisis. I don't understand how you can be the build yourself up by your bootstraps party, but not allow people to build themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. You need to pay people a living wage. There's that really great meme that goes around once a month of the FDR quote. You know the one I'm talking about, the living wage quote? Oh, yeah. The, uh, to say to pay somebody a living wage does not mean paying them enough to get by. It means paying them enough that they can live a full and happy life. That's a living wage. We have so many people in this country who have to work three jobs to be able to even make enough money to cover rent, heat, food, that they don't have enough money to do anything else with. There are other countries in the world, AJ, that have seven weeks of paid vacation a year. There's that great movie that's coming out by Michael Moore. Have you seen the? Have you heard about this one? I've heard about it, but I haven't seen like a trailer or any teasers about it yet. But you know what it's about? Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Michael Moore has a movie coming out, or it may have actually already been released, called Where Should We Invade Next? And it gets into the idea of, in Europe and in other countries around the world, there are programs that are in place that were actually American ideas that have been improved upon by other countries. The best example, paid vacation. America was the first country, because of unions, to get paid vacation. Other countries took it and expanded it. Uh, Paid maternity leave is an American idea, expanded on in Europe to the point where people can get as much as six to nine months off of work paid to raise their kids because family is more important than your job. It is only here in the United States of America and maybe some other countries, I'm thinking maybe Japan, where work is more important than your family. And people will go, well, that's not the case. And I said, no, but the, the system says that it is. Because right, and, and, the, and, the, and you have that mentality of, well, essentially the boomer, baby boomer generation that feels that you, the only way to live life in the United States is go to school, go to work, raise your family, die. Right. Am I am I wrong? I mean, no. I mean, that's boomer generation. The, 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 yeah, and go to work every single day. Don't take sick unless you absolutely have to. You know, vacations are something to be fought against. The fact that we have every year uh, there, there's something like I don't know, like twenty five percent of vacation time in the United States isn't used every year. Mm-hmm. Like people just don't use it. Think about that. Do you think people don't want to take vacation, but they're afraid to take vacation? Because if yeah. you take a vacation for more than a week, for more than three days, there's a good possibility a company will realize it doesn't need you and fire you. Right. I mean, I have a friend living in town here. I mean, he had a fight to get a promotion for his job, you know, and he's he's in the engineering business, and. Albeit he has an associate's degree in engineering and everything. He didn't go for a bachelor's. 
but he was in a position at the time where he did um, AutoCAD, which is a drafting program. And he was really and he was really good at it. But then over the time, he became more and more management material. But he was only getting thirty five thousand a year. Now he has a family of three. You know, and he had a fight to get a promotion at his new job. To get around fifty thousand dollars or better. I mean, he had a fight for that. You know, it's like, dude, he's been doing this. For the last twelve years, you know, and you're—he's essentially the person that if China or Mexico screws up on their products, it goes to him to fix the problem. Well, it gets into the idea too of of just you know wage increases not keeping up with with inflation. And I'll give you an example—you're talking about fifty thousand dollars a year. Fifty thousand dollars a year is not a lot of money. It's it not. You know, to somebody who's making thirty-five, it seems like a lot of money, but it's really not, especially for a family of three, or for a family with three kids. Mm-hmm. That is not a lot of money. And this dude, from what you're telling me, you know, had to claw and fight and manipulate and and, and do everything he could to get that raise, and he gets it. And it's like he went through all of that, and now, guaranteed, he's locked in at fifty thousand dollars for at least three years, at least if not longer. And and that's assuming he keeps his job, right. That's insane. Meanwhile, you have CEOs of companies who are making in the multi-millions of dollars, and that money doesn't get focused back down to the workers. It just gets taken and stored in an offshore banking account, and then that money doesn't get taxed. And as a result, we find ourselves in a situation where nobody is paying their fair share, but everyone yells that everyone should be paying more. It, 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 It bothers the hell out of me, man, that we have... I get into the people who say, and I'm assuming you're with me on this, when you hear people get uh, go against McDonald's workers, I get, I get, I get livid. Do you? No, I, I, I don't get upset over the workers of any fast food restaurant at all. I get upset more of the organization known as McDonald's, Burger King. Well, no, no, no. What I, what I mean is, it, what I'm saying is, you, when I when I go online uh, on my social media, and let's say that there's a protest taking place downtown for the workers at McDonald's, and they're out in front of the one that's at Randolph and Wacker, right, right, which is, t- tends to be the one they stand in front of. When they're out there, and I see people going, "Well, I work." You know, I, I only make this amount of money, and I went to college, got a four-year degree. Why do the people from McDonald's think they should make more than I do? And you look at them and go, no, you idiot. You should also be making more money. Like, it, it, to, to sit there and have people. Here's my, my point, AJ. If somebody works at McDonald's for 40 hours a week, I do not care what the job is. But if you put in your 40 and you, and you do your work and you pay your taxes, you should make enough money to have a place to live and to raise a family. What is the argument against that? Because people... there isn't, and I, I think there's like this disconnect when you're talking about a living wage or um, a universal fifteen an hour um, argument. That because the disconnect I see it as you have a some a worker a McDonald's worker getting fifteen an hour, then that means they may make more than their managers will know if any worker at McDonald's that also being a manager they're getting 15 the workers are getting a pay raise but that manager's also getting a pay raise 
at the same token, you know. So the worker in itself is not going to make more money than any manager or administrator for any business, you know, because that's how mechanisms work in businesses. It, it doesn't work like that unless you're saying everybody um, from CEO to worker is at one pay level. Then I think that's where a lot of people will get really upset with that if the CEO and the janitor makes 15 an hour across the board, that's where people would piss their pants. But we're well, not no, and if that were the that. case, I would be upset too. I'm not saying that the guy who works at the, at the checkout line should be making the same amount of money as the guy who runs the company. I don't think that it either, but I think it's insane that the guy who runs the company makes 100 times more than the guy who exactly. runs the checkout counter. That's where I have the problem. You shouldn't be able to... We are creating the very thing that America fought against in the Revolutionary War. There's a great thing that goes out, and if you tell people about it, they freak out. And if you tried, if you ever tried to explain the death tax or the estate tax to somebody who doesn't know about history, have you ever tried? Oh yeah, in fact, I talked to about the death tax to a bunch of high schoolers this past weekend at a lecture. And when you brought it out to them, they go, "Well, that doesn't seem right. You've already paid taxes on the money." Oh, no, they didn't know there was a death tax at all. And then you explained it to them, and then they were, were they afforded it against it? Did they not raise any opinion? Oh, they thought, well, that's... One kid goes, well, that's bullshit. And I go, exactly. <laughs> oh, you think it's bullshit? Oh, yeah. Why should you get taxed if you're dead? Oh, see, this is the thing. The purpose of the estate tax is to prevent the formation of a landed gentry. A landed gentry. I am for the estate tax. Oh, I'm not. Oh, I'm very for it. This is interesting that we're on opposite sides of this. Yes, I'm very for it. Uh, the the debt the the estate tax is there to prevent exactly what's happened, and because people are getting around it so much, inherited wealth is becoming the the way of making it in the United States. Yeah, no, I'm I'm for the, the estate tax uh, completely. It's it's there for a reason, and I know that there's some people who say you're getting taxed on the money twice. Says, no, your kid is getting taxed on the money. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. Why? I'm, so a part of it is yes. I mean, if you pass and that money goes to whoever heirs your estate, I mean, I'm for that. But why tax on that? Why tax the very heirs who are getting my estate while that's not their problem? You know what I'm saying? I, I understand what you're saying. I, I do get it. But to me, it, it's one of the things. Like you said, I mean, my kids or whoever else is getting taxed twice. So that's not their fault that they're having my inheritance and they're going to get taxed on that and everything just because the state wants to get their dollars and cents, you know, for revenue and everything. I mean, if once I pass, I'm passed. I'm done. Move, move that money over and then just keep on taxing the way my heirs are being taxed and not tax them twice on it. Well, here's the thing, though. You know that it's a five. The taxes don't even kick in until five million four hundred and fifty thousand. Right. So I don't have a problem with it. Like if, if we're not talking about people who are going to be hurting anyway, and it's it's just one of those things that helps the country. I've always been a big supporter of the estate tax, personally. Uh, we can do a whole show on that sometime but i just but anyway my, my, oh yeah we'll do a whole show on taxes because that'll, that'll be sad. yeah that'll be a great listen yeah see that's the thing about trying to do this and be entertaining at the same time it's like this is a very important issue but it's boring as hell and nobody wants to hear about it have you had a chance to check out the movie the big short yet 
No, and I want to see that here soon. All right, I'll send you a link. You can watch it online. Uh, one of the great scenes in that movie involves they're trying to explain what a CDO is. and the A guy, CDO or a CBO? A, C, a CBO, sorry, CBO. Okay. And I'll explain why I don't remember exactly what it's called. In the movie, they, they do a bit where they go, well, no, we know what you're thinking. How are we going to explain this to you and not have it not be boring? Well, here's Margot Robbie in a hot tub drinking champagne. And they, they cuts to Margot Robbie, the actress, a very attractive blonde actress, sitting in a hot tub filled with bubbles, drinking champagne, and explaining to you the details of high finance. It's a great idea. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on the end of this, and I, I want to... There are a couple of things I want to hit on. I, I the, the first thing I want to mention is, I feel like, do you feel like every state of the union, there's a reference to the fact that we landed on the moon in 10 years? Yeah, because didn't Bush reference the moon at one point in one of his state of the unions also? And I know Clinton has. Yeah, Clinton did, did and they all did it for the same thing, which is to cure cancer. All three of the, the our last presidents have used it in a way to imply that they, because we accomplished that goal, we could cure cancer in the next 10 years. Uh, Clinton said that, Bush has said it, and now Obama has said it. Yeah, I, it I just, mean, I don't know. To me, it feels like, a, a, here's the thing, here's the thing. To me, as a wrestling fan, as an entertainment fan, it feels like somebody going, hey, you remember all that awesome stuff that happened in the 90s? We can totally redo that. And it, like from a president's angle, it's like, hey, you remember when one of the guys in my job was like, we can do this in the next 10 years, and then we did it? Wouldn't it be great if we did that again? So let's See, do that. Why can't the State of the Union be like the um, in wrestling where you have every single wrestler speak after a big event and then all of a sudden like their opposing wrestler comes out halfway through, if not towards the end of their presentation? Because I think it would be great that Obama talked and then like out of nowhere, John Boehner <laughs> with entrance music. <laughs> Comes from the back. <laughs> well, then you have to ask the, the series of questions. What would John Boehner's entrance music be? You know, and then all the Republicans stand up and applaud and everything, and then Boehner takes the mic and goes, "You know what? That was great, but I have some things to say." I, 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 I mean, if you're going to go on the idea of the surprise uh, Republican run-in, then I've got to say I'd, I'd really want to. I, I mean, your instinct says Trump, but I've seen Trump do an actual run-in on wrestling, and it wasn't very oh, yeah. exciting. So I don't want to see that. And again, anyone who's thinking about voting for Donald Trump, which I imagine you're not listening to this podcast, but if you are, uh, I feel it's important to remind you that at one point in about 2005, Donald Trump appeared in a two-month storyline on the WWE. Keep that in mind if you consider him to be a valuable presidential candidate. Because I'm a wrestling fan, and no one who's ever been on Raw for more than 10 minutes should be allowed to be president. I'm just saying. But if you're going to go off of that, I, I think I think the fun one would have been a uh, a Ted Cruz with his with his little head, or even better would have been a Rick Perry because Rick Perry's crazy, and it'd be kind of fun to watch a crazy person just run into the the Senate chamber. All right. Before we get out of here, the last thing I want to get into, we, we talked on our last show, AJ, on Monday, uh, about legacy. We've got 11 months, realistically. We've got nine months left of an Obama presidency. Do you see him managing to get any laws past this Congress of any substantive value? Um, I can probably see him getting one, maybe two. What, what issues do you think no. he, he can address? 
I think he will address at some point about um, criminal justice reform. Um, I'm, I'm, my gut tells me that, and I'm interested in what that's going to be. But I think he will talk more about gun control since he already put an executive order in, and he's going to be on the road here pretty soon. I think it's going to be about gun control. And so even though he has an executive order in, I think he wants to put some sort of legislation because I think him doing an executive order is that spark plug to actually ignite an actual conversation and actual legislation and everything. Because now the Republicans and conservatives are pissed that he's done the executive order thing. Now we have to have something substantive than an executive order. Yeah, the last thing I'll say about last night's show, uh, show, last night's State of the Union, uh, I went to the CNN coverage uh, following the State of the Union. Also, I wanted to tell you something. Uh, how did you watch it? Did you watch it on TV or did you watch it on the Internet? I saw it on MSNBC. Okay. Uh, I did something different that I've never done before. I didn't watch it on TV. I watched it on YouTube because they stream it every year. And it was very fascinating. They had a side, because it was the White House's official stream. Oh, okay. And they had a side panel that was putting up statistics to back up what he was saying while he was speaking. It was oh, very, that's interesting. Yeah, it was very different. And uh, it, it was an interesting way to watch it. So next year, uh, for whoever's president, hopefully a Democrat, I, I would recommend people watch it on YouTube. It's a very fascinating experience. It's, it's very different. It's the speech that the White House wants to give. A lot less shots of the crowd, I might uh, I'd also point out. Uh, it was very interesting. I Looking forward to the next year. I th- Anyway, so I went to the CNN coverage afterwards. And one of the women, I don't remember the who. The party? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the post game. I always like to call it post game. True. Because it's not post game, but it's it's watching CNN try to do what ESPN does. Or MSNBC or Fox. Because that's what MSNBC was doing, too. It's like. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I'm an idiot. I should have gone over to Fox News for 10 minutes just for the fun of it. Because you saw, like, Chris Matthews with his arms crossed, and he goes, well, Rachel. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, this is so, like, an ESPN. <laughs> type of after game show but one of the one of the women uh, reporters on the uh, on the network and I, I feel bad that i didn't write down her name but david axelrod was was there in studio as well and he said something along the lines of i thought that the president did a very good job tonight he, he's typical obama you know classic obama you know the great order that we've always known that he is and one of the women on the show says, yes, but this is a very important speech because most of his legacy is dependent on executive orders. The next president needs to be a Democrat. Otherwise, the next president can wipe out everything that he's basically done. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really fascinating idea uh, going forward. I honestly, I will be shocked, AJ, if a single law of substance is passed this year. I think that we're... I can see, I can probably, I want to be upset or surprised if nothing gets passed under him, but I think he really wants to be an active president, not a lame duck president, and that's why I'm thinking one other piece of legislation might go through. Part of me thinks he's such a good campaigner uh, that his time, last time in office would be better spent basically on the campaign trail. And probably, and but then you go, is it going to be the obvious Hillary Clinton campaign or the way he was kind of talking at State of Union address Bernie Sanders? Because you already had 
Joe Biden unofficially endorse Bernie Sanders and everything Obama was talking about is what Bernie Sanders has been talking about also. So it's kind of like, do you officially endorse Hillary Clinton or do you unofficially endorse Bernie Sanders? Yeah, I don't think he'll endorse anybody till after the primary. Probably. I mean, that just isn't going to happen. I can't remember in my life or in any books that I've ever read of a standing president endorsing a, a candidate before the primary. I, I really can't. And if it has happened, it would. It, it's it's. It was John Tyler. Yeah. No, William Henry Harrison. He died in forty days. But he endorsed somebody. Yeah, he totally endorsed his replacement. <laughs> in a letter. In a letter. On his deathbed because he forgot because to wear. You're so future focused like that. Well, you know the fever dreams from not wearing a coat outside in negative temperatures will do that to you. The fever dreams. All right. Well. It's about that time, ladies and gentlemen. AJ, thank you so much for joining me today and doing our thing. Uh, Anything you... uh, Just say goodbye to the people. Let's just do that. My people. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Out Front with AJ and Nick on the Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook uh, under Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter at Chicago Podcast One. You can find us on Gmail, Chicago Podcast Network at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, calling, texting, faxing. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. None of that happened, but I felt like saying it anyway. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I believe the term I'm looking for is oh, yes. We out! 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.